What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a ton of money in the process. And on this show, I talk to these ND Hackers to learn about the latest ideas, opportunities, and strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. If you've been listening in and enjoying the show, do me a favor, leave a quick rating for us on Apple Podcasts. Today, I'm talking to Chris Oliver. Chris is a solo founder and ND hacker. He recently passed a million dollars in revenue from his products, which is super impressive. And he's kind of had a cool journey. At some point, he was recording screencasts and helping people learn Ruby on Rails. And he got to the point where he was literally working the four-hour work week. He would spend four hours putting together a screencast and then have nothing to do the rest of the week and he's making a full-time salary. So he decided to expand an entire suite of products. Now he's got a bunch of different business models, a bunch of different stuff he's built, and they're all kind of targeted at the same group of people, this little empire that he's built for himself at his company, Go Rails. Enjoy the episode. So your plan on Black Friday is to raise your prices. Yeah, sort of like, I'm basically selling this Rails app template, but as time goes on, like there's a lot of maintenance to something like that to keep it up to date with the latest Rails and everything. So right, yeah, it seems like the logical time to be like, yeah, and part of our deal is prices go up after Black Friday. So that should work pretty well. Fingers crossed. You said it was like, what's the price before and after Black Friday? It's one forty nine for single use and four forty nine for um, multiple use. And what I'll be doing in the future is not including free updates every year. So you'll subscribe like on a yearly plan, kind of like Sketch does, I think. What do you think about um, Black Friday in general? I keep seeing all these tweets. Like, what are your thoughts on Black Friday as a creator? Or what are your thoughts <laughs> on Black Friday as a consumer? And people are so charged about this. People are like, it's mindless consumerism and it's terrible for the world. And other people are like, no, it's great. <laughs> I get a lot of free or cheap stuff. What do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. The stuff that I don't like is like, Walmart making special TVs just for Black Friday that are like slightly crappier, but they don't tell you that. But as a business owner, it's great because that ends up being like a couple months of revenue over a weekend sometimes, which is awesome. But you don't want to go too far with, it seems like a lot of people this year are doing like 50% off, which yeah, it is a pandemic year, which I understand. That's a good way to like help people out. And that's kind of how I treat it is like, I'll do... Black Friday deals for a way to give back. But probably the best thing that I ever heard was a friend of mine runs a a pizza restaurant chain, a small one. And he told me he'll never discount his pizzas, no coupons or anything, but he is happy to give them away for free because that does not discount the price of it. So they always know it's worth the, you know, $22 for a pizza and I thought that was like a really good thing. So I try and do my deals like that if I can. But for some of it, it's just easier to do 50 bucks yeah. off or something. So These kind of discounts always remind me of Groupon, where they were getting all these brick-and-mortar businesses to do these ridiculous deals pretty much all year round. So like 50% off, yeah. <laughs> 80% off, 90% off in some cases. And what happened was none of the customers ever came back. Like people were just cheapskates and they're like, yeah, sure, I'll go skydiving for 20 bucks. And they would go and they would never, the businesses would never hear from them again. Yeah. A lot of businesses went yep. under because they were losing so much money giving these deals, hoping that people would show up again and nobody ever came back. Yeah, that is the worst thing to happen. You don't want that. And it's no. the whole point of doing these deals is usually you want them to be repeat customers. That's why Starbucks has their loyalty stuff. They get you to come back again and you know, it's just a little incentives, but yeah, if you're doing it at a loss or anything, then that's, that's not going to help you really. Yeah. And I like that you mentioned these loyalty programs, like at best, most of these brick and mortar businesses have little punch cards where you get a discount when you get your 10th coffee or something. And that kind of sort of gets people coming back, (laughs) but it's super primitive compared to what online businesses have where, you know, you've got all your different products and I guarantee you've got probably a pretty big mailing list where you can re-engage your customers whenever you want to. Oh, it's huge because it's grown to like 23,000 people. And these are people who gave me their email address to really, they want to hear updates from me. And that's much more deliberate than a Twitter follow or anything like that. So that has been phenomenal. And really going the distance on that, I think, is is setting up like automations and ConvertKit has been phenomenal because used to not do that and I used to not really take advantage of my email list or even really collect emails. 
And for the people who stumble on your site for the first time, get them on your email list and go send them something, an email that you pre-planned out once a week. And that makes a huge difference because then it just, you know, builds trust with them on who you are and all those like other little nuances to the relationship that you have with this person. You don't even know they exist, but they're like, huh, who is this guy behind Go Rails? And, right. you know, it builds up a lot of trust and they learn things and you just teach them over your email list and eventually they're going to buy something because they're going to trust you and know that you do good stuff and they're interested in that. Otherwise, they're going to unsubscribe, which is totally fine too. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned trust here. You tweeted recently that you uh, had a million dollars in total revenue across all your products. Most of that comes from teaching people how to be better developers, teaching people Rails stuff. And a lot of that comes from trust. People have to trust you in order to decide they want to buy your products. And I've seen this pattern again and again and again when I've interviewed people who are educating software engineers or educating anybody, really. Some good examples would be Wes Boss, who sells courses, and he builds up a lot of trust over Twitter. Same with Adam Wathen and, and Steve Sugar. They just tweet lots of educational, instructional stuff. In Wes's case, he'll release free courses, and people can take the free courses and be like, oh, this guy really knows his stuff. And then when he releases a paid course, people trust him because of the free stuff and they'll buy the paid course. I've talked to Tara Reed, who teaches people how to build apps without knowing how to code, and she built up a lot of trust in the early days just by basically giving talks, I think is how she first got on people's radar. And then she would go on people's Instagram accounts and do takeovers and like teach people through kind of influencer marketing. And that's how she gets people to trust her. There's Egghead.io, where the founders originally had a YouTube channel where they were giving stuff away for free. They had tons of subscribers, they had an email list, and then eventually they started charging. So I think there's this consistent pattern here. If you're going to educate, you need to first build up trust, and you do that through giving away free products. Yeah, when I started, I had no one knew who I was. I was posting a few blog posts about if something took me more than, say, four hours to figure out a bug in Ruby on Rails or something, I would write a blog post about it, what my solution was. Because clearly I spent quite a bit of time and I couldn't find the answer. So it's probably going to help somebody else. And if not myself in six months or whatever, when I hit it again. So that was kind of SEO was really the thing that I started with um, because people would start to follow my blog because I was posting about things and I would share them on Twitter too. But like I didn't have a big Twitter following. Even today, I don't have that big. It's not even 8,000 followers on Twitter yet. So really, SEO has been the big thing. And then I was posting tutorials. And sure enough, they started being linked to on Stack Overflow and stuff, which really built the audience. And I was like, maybe I could turn this into a business. So SEO was really my first place that I stumbled into kind of on accident. It wasn't on purpose. And I, it's probably one of the harder things to do. But as long as you're writing about stuff that no one else really is, that can help. Yeah, I think just writing for developers in general is such an advantage because we're always searching for stuff. We're always Googling stuff. We're always on Stack Overflow trying to find the answer to some obscure question. And if you write about something obscure enough and unique enough like you were doing, then you're not going to have a lot of competition to be the front page of Google. So you're doing a lot of that. You're driving a lot of traffic. Uh, Where do you go from there? Yeah, I turned into trying to sell a course, but nobody knew who I was. And I realized I'm going to sell like two courses a month for 40 bucks each. And that's not going to pay the rent. (laughs) Yeah. Then I realized like, okay, the guy who was screencasting before me that I really liked was doing a free video every other week. And the free videos are a way for me to do marketing. And very few people are screencasting. So I can publish those and give them away and link them out. And there's, you know, other newsletters like Ruby Weekly that goes out to 40-some thousand Ruby developers. If I can get my videos in there, amazing. So that goes out and starts, you know, building the audience for me. And, you know, over time, uh, that really helped because I was able to just have new content every other week that was for free that people would discover me by. And then having email capture next to that allows me to push those updates to them every week instead of them randomly stumbling upon it on accident or whatever. So that, you know, built more of a direct relationship with people, which was pretty much crucial to to building a screencasting education business. Smart. So you just had kind of dumb traffic coming in from Google and Stack Overflow, and you took that, added a newsletter capture form to your website, and now it's not just traffic, it's an actual audience. And you can re-engage them whenever you want, build up trust, eventually sell stuff to them. 
what is it that you're selling? And what is it that you're teaching people? It's pretty much how it's been for almost seven years, I guess now, where I post videos every week. The content has changed quite a bit, but I cover Ruby on Rails topics. And I try and teach stuff that is almost like we're sitting down and working together. So I want to record not basics. Everybody that's doing YouTube videos and screencasts on a lot of programming stuff just default to here's, you know, intro to HTML or Ruby on Rails or whatever it is. And there's a lot of that. So I'm deliberately trying to do a bit more advanced stuff and do topics that people aren't able to find easily. I take those learnings and turn them into screencasts. And a lot of it now is we've got a really good Slack community of a couple thousand people in there that are talking every day about Ruby on Rails and stuff and encouraging each other and working together. And it's awesome. And we've also got the forum where those are great for other people who don't want to be, you know, they want to ask a question about something like an architecture question of how would I build this feature? It doesn't really fit Stack Overflow well because they want specific, like, here's an error. How do I fix it? And these are like, more philosophical programming questions. Right. So Stack Overflow is kind of like a universal question and answer site where you ask a question and millions of people might have that same exact question. But on your forum, people can ask more personal questions and things that no one else cares about, just that are really specific to them. Yeah. And so I try and provide like a place for that that doesn't really exist. And that's kind of been really useful. It's hard to keep up with all those, but I try and answer as many of those as I can. And I spend a lot of time just messaging people you know, on the forums or on Slack or on Twitter and email. That's been a a tough one to keep up with. But, you know, all of those are like ways for me to help people out for free. But that hopefully gets them to come back and watch screencasts and pay for those, you know. So everything's really about educating people and certain topics are much more complicated and take a lot more effort. And those are the ones that fit as, you know, paid products or whatever. Yeah, it's almost like a Substack, where on Substack, people have got these paid newsletters, and they send them out once a week, twice a week, whenever, and people pay a monthly fee to subscribe. And you're doing the same thing, except you've got uh, paid screencasts. But I'm on your pricing page right now. You're charging 20 bucks a month, or $200 a year, which is a pretty good amount. That's more than most of these paid newsletters cost. And you've also got a custom community forum, just like Substack has, for all their newsletter authors. And I'm assuming people are just subscribed because they just want to watch your videos every week. Or is it more of like people have a very specific problem and so they just want to go search your archives for like the exact video that will solve that problem? Yeah, it's interesting because there's very clearly in my, if I, if I look at people's usage, there is very clearly two groups of people. People who want to just be up to date on stuff and just keep an eye on what is going on in the Rails world will stick around and they'll stay subscribed for a longer time and they'll probably be more involved in the Slack. But then there's the other group of people who are like, hey, I'm building this app for my job and I need to go add Facebook login and here's a video and I'll go pay for that and watch that and you know, may not stick around. And so there's kind of naturally higher churn in that, that group of customers, which makes sense, but it also makes a business really hard to grow. They're here for specific things and don't necessarily stick around, which isn't great for the business as a whole, but it does help them, which is, at the end of the day, what matters. Yeah, so I've seen this exact same pattern putting out content with indie hackers, where it's very tempting to do this kind of like evergreen, very functional, educational how-to content. You know, here's how to solve this specific problem. But the problem is, like, the only people who care about that are people who have that very specific problem, and once you solve it for them, they just don't come back. They kind of hit and run. And the opposite is informative content. If you can teach people about what's going on in their world, keep people up to date, people don't really churn from that. Like it's, it's, the dichotomy is like, you know, I look at it like school versus news. People graduate from school and then they don't go back because they got what they came for, but nobody graduates from reading the New York Times. You go back to find out what's new every day or every week. So uh, it's not shocking to me that the people who just want to be informed about Rails are your highest, your sort of lowest churn subscribers. But there's an exception to this that I've seen which is if you're doing educational content and you want to have like an endless fount of people who are searching for educational content, even if they're sort of hit it in quitters, if you can get it on any sort of search channel, because that's where all of these like these one-time visitors come from, like Google search or YouTube, that's pretty good. So how are you thinking about YouTube? Is that a channel you want to be on even more? 
Oh, definitely. I publish my free videos on YouTube mostly just to keep them free for me so I don't have to pay for the bandwidth and all that. But I think that part of the problem is it's not going to bring the intermediate or advanced developers that I'm generally selling to. I would have to then go tailor more content to beginners. Honestly, I haven't been a beginner in programming for a long time. So there's so much that I take for granted right. that, it, you know, it, to thoroughly explain something as a beginner would take me a lot of time. But I bet if I did go that route and I've, I've toyed with the idea of doing it, I probably would be able to like very thoroughly explain stuff that, you know, a lot of uh, the tutorials will just gloss over basics. They'll be like, don't worry about what this does. Just type it. And you're left wondering, like, what just happened here? Or like, (laughs) if you change something, you don't know how to fix it when it breaks because you didn't ever really learn how or why it worked. Right. So, yeah, I think that's something that I will probably do in the next year is is try and do more basics and like beginner stuff because that also helps the funnel of, you know, the market size for my intermediate content grows the more that I can get people to become intermediate, you know, Rails developers or Ruby developers. So it's something I probably need to do. Let's go back to the beginning because uh, obviously you're crushing it now. Your business is doing very well. Like I mentioned, you've made over a million dollars in revenue from your products. But I know the first few years for you were pretty tough. Uh, You made like less than minimum wage for a year. You ended up having to go back and work a job. (laughs) Maybe the first three or four years for you. We're, we're not easy. Yeah. Tell me about those early days. Oh, man. They still regularly, I feel like, affect some of my decisions because I, was, I had to be so frugal. But I knew my personality wasn't super risk-taking. So what I did was I was consulting and I saved up, I don't remember how much exactly, but I had roughly like nine months of rent and food and whatever expenses saved up. And I realized... From all these years of trying to build something on the side and, you know, at nights and weekends, I needed to really go cut myself off from that, burn the bridges, force myself to figure it out because I knew I could, but I wasn't putting in the effort that I needed to. And so I did January 1st of 2014 and I went all in on on GoRails after I had had a little bit of, you know, I knew that there was like 6,000 visits a month to GoRails' website. So I knew I had some audience to sell stuff to. And the first year I tried to do a screencast and just do that course originally. And boy, was that hard because I'm a programmer. All of my work is generally in my head. And Mm -hmm. so I'm thinking, but not talking about what I'm thinking out loud. And that's really how I need to teach in a screencast. And I couldn't stand my own voice and I couldn't even sit down for 15 minutes and record a screencast. Like I would just get frustrated and give up. And so I had to force myself to record for 15 minutes a day, whether or not I threw it away. I just needed to build the habit. So that took me like the first uh, half of the year to get my first 15 videos that I turned into a course uh, together. And then I didn't, I launched it to basically nobody. No one really bought it. No one knew who I was. I think I made a couple hundred dollars on that course, like selling one every two weeks or something. And then when I moved to switch over to the weekly screencast to get more you know, exposure, I was running out of money. So I'm applying for jobs and I get an interview with a YC startup. And that's when I realized that things were starting to take off on GoRails because the day of like my first interview or second interview, GoRails was like number one on Hacker News and someone I didn't know submitted it. And it was linked on Hacker News like the whole day right at the top. And I was like, well, this couldn't make my interview go any better. <laughs> and then I was like starting to doubt, like, should I even get this job? Because clearly it's going somewhere now. Like I, I know that I had always struggled with the term product market fit and I realized then that it was like when people are pulling me to do more of something, that's when I know that I'm starting to get towards a product market fit of some sort. And I'm being, you know, encouraged to continue doing more. And and I had that feeling before. So that was kind of a, a fascinating time. But it was like I'm out of money and it's grown to like 500 bucks a month or 450 a month or something. 
And that wasn't quite enough to pay my bills and, and whatever and catch up in time. So I took the job, moved to New York City for a year, learned a bunch of stuff, and it didn't work out. And so I went back on my own for GoRails, and I'd been working on it that time while I was at the job. So it continued to grow, and I was just kind of doing it on the side there and not worrying about making money with it for a year. And when I decided to leave that job, it was like, okay, it pretty much pays my bills if I move back to the Midwest, but it was like 36000 a year or something that it was pulling in. So it wasn't great, but I was like, it's close enough that I think I can wing it and I don't have hardly any expenses and we'll see. So I did and putting in my full time at that point, got it to grow quite a bit better. And it's perfect timing to be talking about this right now, but the original Black Friday sale that I did was it's $9 a month and this isn't sustainable. So I'm going to raise it to 19 a month after Black Friday. So that's my Black Friday deal. Get it now before the prices go up. More than doubled your prices. Yeah. <laughs> and I got a ton of people to sign up and that added like 2000 MRR or something around that wow. you know, first Black Friday that I did. And that was huge because now it made it like sustainable for me where I could live full time on this. Not ideal. I still want to get to like, I still dream of having a full like regular engineer salary, but it's enough. I'll survive on this and I don't have to answer to anyone. And that was, that was a pretty good milestone. I like, you know, very happily remember that moment. And you probably wouldn't have believed at the time that you were eventually going to make much more money. You're eventually going to make a million dollars from all this stuff. But it's not shocking to me that you had product market fit. I mean, you kind of were the successor to Railscast, where they would publish these weekly videos, and they also had subscribers. And I don't know who was behind Railscast, but apparently he like stopped working on it at some point. Yeah, actually, um, Ryan Bates was the guy who did Railscast, and I learned everything from him when I was learning Rails. And that was the inspiration when I was like, I'm going to sell a course or something because I miss Railscasts and maybe I can teach them stuff. I know I can teach a few things. And yeah, that was my inspiration. And when the course thing didn't work out because I didn't have an audience, the weekly screencast and basically like, what if I can be sort of a successor to this? I'll never teach it the way he did. I'll be my own kind of, you know, educator. But people miss that. I dearly miss it. So why don't I go, you know, try and fill that void and you see that working really well right now with Ben Ornstein building Tuple. Everybody missed Screen Hero. Yep. And Tuple's grown amazingly. So it's an interesting approach to use if you're trying to find a, a business idea. Like what is something you really wish still existed? Yep. Like, go recreate it. And you see that all the time. I'm looking at your Hacker News post from 2014 when somebody submitted you. And it's like out of the top five comments, four of them mention how much they missed Railscast. <laughs> and I'm just talking about Railscast, yeah. and it's like you're just like hitting that spot where people used to get a thing, and it was taken away from them, and now like you've slotted right into that that desire. Yeah, it worked really well, and and Ryan Bates kind of burned out, I think, from it, and so he like disappeared from the internet for a long time, and actually he just popped up on Twitter again after a couple years, and uh, you know he still keeps Railscast alive, and he had a sponsorship with DigitalOcean and had some trouble with that, but they. He tweeted about it and whatever, but it's like nice to see him pop up once in a while, know that he's still doing well and still yeah. exists. So this is one way to come up with an idea. You see that something was already popular, then either it got really crappy or disappeared, and you can kind of just copy what they were doing, and you know that like, the demand is there. They've sort of proven that it works. Uh, another idea I have in this space that I've always wanted people to do is games. I just don't understand why there aren't more games that are helping people learn how to code because learning how to code is like, quite frankly, not that fun for a lot of people. It's pretty hard. But if you can actually have fun doing certain things, I think games are addictive. And I kind of tested this once with my brother. I've taught a lot of my friends how to code. I taught my brother how to code. And for yeah. one of his final products or projects before he applied for jobs, I was like, you should have some sort of game that you make okay. that teaches people some coding concept. And so he decided he was going to teach people CSS Flexbox and he was going to do it through this game that was like a tower defense game. So a tower defense game is like you've got all these enemies. They're trying to get from one side of the screen to the other. And you build like these attack towers to shoot the enemies before they get to the other side and destroy your castle. 
And the trick with his was that you have to use CSS Flexbox to position your towers. And so every Ooh, level would teach you like yeah. a, few, a few more concepts, and you'd have to be really good at Flexbox to be able to like move stuff around fast enough to not lose. And to this day, I mean, this is like five years ago. To this day, people still are like streaming his game on Twitch, and they are like donating stuff and they're tweeting about it. It's just a cool resource that people find that they're like it's just the coolest way to learn CSS Flexbox. Like there isn't a better way to learn it. And I'm shocked that no one's like no one's copying this. Like nobody did this for CSS Grid or a bunch of other concepts. And it blows my mind that like people aren't more creative here. So there are downsides. I mean, like it's hard to sell a game. People aren't going to pay money for this. But I wonder what you would do. You know, would you put a price on this? Do you think games are, are something people could use for learning to code? I think that seems like the perfect free thing to give away that you can turn into. You know, let's make a CSS course where we build games to learn the CSS properties or something. I would probably do it as something like that, where the the game's clearly super valuable if it's free because it attracts so many people. I wouldn't try and monetize that because you're going to dilute the value from it pretty quickly. But if you do say like, hey, if you really enjoyed this style of learning, I've turned this into a course where you can learn JavaScript by making games and you can learn CSS by making games in this other course or whatever. You know, you're building your trust and you can turn that into products. And, you know, this is like one of those things that I loved about Adam and Steve Shoger when they were posting all those CSS tips. Kind of, they had struck on something that no one else had done. There's a lot of people who are teaching CSS and front end and design for developers, but theirs had a nuance to it that was like, here's what you would probably do. And here's how you can tweak it to be just a little bit more polished. Because there was so much of that in design that I'm like, yeah, I can use Bootstrap and like roughly get what I want and I can put a little detail into it. But honestly, it never has the polish that, you know, a professional designer would put on it. And they were showing those little things that no one else had taught, which was like, use this kind of shadow. Or like, if you're putting gray text on a green background, try using a light green instead of gray. And that's going to fit way better. And you're like, oh, duh, of course. (laughs) But they were the only one that was like, the only group that was like posting those types of things. And by doing it for free, they got a massive audience, which was perfect to launch refactoring UI and Tailwind UI and everything that they're doing. And I really like that approach of like, make something free that people just swarm to Mm -hmm. and then sell stuff because don't sell that directly. Sell things around it because they're going to trust you now and that you don't want to dilute at all. You want to continue that because it's a wonderful funnel to have for your business. That makes perfect sense. And I think people often struggle with like, okay, how do I make something that's gonna, that people are going to swarm to? But one of the things that I've noticed if you're putting out any sort of content is that people just flock to novelty. We're just mm-hmm. we're hardwired to like anything that we've seen or heard a bunch of times. Like we just sort of phase it out because our brains want to pay attention to whatever's new. Like that's the threat. That's the stimulating thing. And if you think about okay, well, I live in a world with seven billion people. How am I going to make something new that no one's ever done before? One of the tricks that I found is just like you just start combining things. Like you take one idea and you combine it with another idea, and suddenly you get something that like very few people have done. And if you combine it with a third idea, then you get something like probably no one's ever done. So in you know the game situation, it was like okay. CSS Flexbox plus Tower Defense, suddenly like that's a really interesting thing that no one's done before. There's another guy I saw on Product Hunt who made this avatar library. And it's called Toy Faces. And it's basically like these 3D avatars that look like toys, and they're also all diverse. And so it was like diversity plus avatars plus toys. And he got like 1,500 upvotes on Product Hunt. <laughs> Just sort of like combining these three <laughs> things. It's like no one had ever seen that before. So I wonder if you're yeah. trying to like teach people to code or do something, you just got to figure out like what are you going to combine to be unique so you stand out and no one's ever seen it. Yeah, that is I mean that is the thing that I usually am thinking about when I'm trying to figure out what to teach. It's a lot of stuff that I'm like, what do I wish I could learn? And I'll go teach it to myself and then I can go teach it in my own way. So those tend to be things that like I can't find good tutorials on or whatever. And by going and doing the hard work of figuring it out myself, then I can condense that down into a course or something and save you a lot of time. One of those examples was the strong customer authentication rollout at Stripe was like, 
you know, a lot of documentation, but it was hard to wrap your head around how has this changed from before? So I actually spent some time, learned the changes for that because before I could implement Stripe without reading the docs, I had it basically memorized. And SEA comes out and everybody's kind of confused on what are these new things like payment intents and setup intents and why do I have to do this now? And a lot had changed. And so uh, that's one of my courses where I went through and spent the time, learned how to you know implement this and turned it into a course for Rails developers. So if you want to implement Stripe, you can definitely read the docs, but also if you want to see something super specific to Rails and you know go through all of those steps, I made a course on it, you know, and it'll save you hopefully quite a bit of time because you're I'll be able to go explain the concepts and whatever and in the right context for those people that you know the Stripe docs are going to be more generic because they can apply to Node and Rails and right. Python and Go and whatever. And just a little tailoring towards my audience can turn into a course, which is kind of cool. That's super smart. And it's novel, again, in like a bunch of different ways. It's novel because, number one, it's new. Like You weren't writing a course on some old thing. There mm-hmm. was a, a brand new change of Stripe, and your course is about that. And that guarantees you're going to be writing about something that people are searching for, people are talking about because it's this like, new thing that just happened. And you're not going to have a lot of competition because no one else has really had time to put out like a screencast on it. And then number two, you're doing, the, you're doing the combinations, right? It's like, okay, it's not just Stripe. It's not just Rails. It's the combination of Stripe and Rails. And assuming both of those buckets are big enough, it ends up still being a really big audience. Like Rails is a massive, massive programming framework. So even if you combine it with something else, like you're still going to have a market where you can make a decent amount of money and, and get customers in the door. Yeah, and this is always the thing that I, I think about if you've been in high school or college and had a career advisor, they're like, do you want to be a, an architect or a programmer or whatever? And really, what everybody wants is like a blend of things. You don't <laughs> want to just be a programmer. Right. You want to be a programmer who can run a business, who knows a little bit about marketing and whatever. And it's always a combination of them. And those are always the most interesting jobs. You're not just a plumber or something. You're like a plumber who specializes in fancy geothermal stuff or whatever, you know? And all of a sudden now you've jumped from the commodity job to like a very specialized high-end, you know, unique thing. And you don't have much competition. You can charge your higher prices. Like you're adding value because you're specialized. And that's kind of what has been nice about GoRails as well is you can take that first thing that worked and then go add another piece in. So for example, I'm doing screencasts on Ruby on Rails, but at a point I was like, one of my tutorials is how to deploy it. And it's deploying to your own servers. And I got tired of doing that myself. And one of my friends was like, why don't you just like automate that and turn it into a product? And so we did. And it's like, now I'm tools for the Rails community. So I'm teaching them things, but I'm helping them deploy their code now I have a template that you can buy as your app with payments already to go and teams and all these other features. And that'll save you a hundred hours out of the box, you know, and there's all these like new combinations that I can add in that give me ideas for new products and right. it just continue to grow. And like the education stuff is not, I'm good at it, but I'm not, I don't love just doing screencasts because there was many, many, many years where I was about ready to give up on the screencast and just shut it down. And uh, adding these other things were some things that, you know, hosting has way less churn. So that makes things more sustainable. And that gives me a lot of ideas for the screencast. And all of a sudden it started to come together and fix a lot of like frustrations that I had with just the one specific product that wasn't really working out for me personally. Like I wasn't fulfilled just creating content. I'm right. I'm naturally a good teacher, but I don't love only teaching. I like explaining stuff because I like learning. And the only way to like be happy then is just, just be building new things all the time. So if I'm just teaching what I know, I'm not going to be happy. Talk to me about screencasting a little bit because I don't know. I've never made a screencast. I imagine it's not easy to do. And you mentioned that when you first started, you had like this uh, conscious incompetence where you're very aware <laughs> that you weren't good at it and it didn't feel good to do. What are people using to record screencasts nowadays and what makes people good at it? 
Yeah. I mean, the big thing is use some software. Like I use ScreenFlow and love it, but use something simple to work with. Like you don't want to be recording screencasts and making mistakes and you export four hours of video and you import it to Final Cut Pro and you spend another 12 hours editing. You don't want to do that. You want to be like my philosophy in, in screencasting is like, I would love it to be like we sit down and we pair a program together and it's just our discussions and our thoughts as we go. So you can understand how I think and how I solve these problems. So that is what I end up doing. And I'll use ScreenFlow and they can record the screen and the webcam and mic all in there, edit all in there. And it allows me to record as I go. So I will sit down and know roughly what I want to talk about. And I'll usually build it, say, two or three or four times ahead of time. So that, you know, if you... If you're programming and you run into a bug that you don't know why it happened, you're going to go off the rails for a good 15 or 20 minutes and you don't want that in your video. So it's helpful to go practice it, say, three or four times. And then when you sit down, you can be very like vocal about your thoughts as you go. Like, okay, we're going to start here. We need to add this library. We need to set it up and configure it. And then we need to create these database records or whatever. And you can just step by step through that and explain kind of the, my goal at least is to explain the thought process. Like I'm not trying to just give you, here's a bunch of code to copy paste, really trying to teach you the thought process. And so that's the real thing I'm, I'm selling. That's the hardest thing to learn. And I think it really hard to learn for some people in, you know, a written tutorial. So videos can be really valuable for a certain style of learner. Not everybody learns best in video, but yeah, I pretty much just go and practice it a few times, record. If I make a mistake or mumble something, I just delete the last minute and re-record that. If you include those, it makes the viewer kind of question your your like ability and you are like just distracting them from the core topic you're trying to share. So I try and avoid those, but I really love making some videos that are specifically on that where it's like, here, I have this weird error Let's actually make a video specifically about how we figure out what's the problem, how do we fix it. So if you're deliberately talking about those things, then I think that's better. Somebody was to start this today, would you recommend that they take your approach where you were, I mean, you built GoRails from scratch. It's a custom-built, custom-designed website. Uh, you have to grow your own email list. It's all 100% in-house. But there's all these other platforms. I mean, we mentioned YouTube. Uh, there's Egghead.io, where they're basically hiring, uh, working with course creators to put courses out and they sort of handle the distribution for you. Uh, there's platforms like Teachable. So if you're like trying to make a course, they've got a bunch of different tools that allow you to build a course super easy. So you just focus on just like the content. You don't have to build the sort of website around it. Uh, what would you recommend somebody do if they're just starting? Yeah, I would probably recommend using something like, like Podia is really great because you can sell a membership. So if you wanted to sell a weekly screencast like I'm doing, you could do that built in. But they also have courses and digital downloads and other things. So you could easily extend and you know add other products that weren't necessarily screencasts. Originally, I built it myself because I wanted to teach how to build it. And I thought that would be really fun and kind of meta. But of course, I was very bad at screencasting back then. And I built the site and tried to record some, but it was just, it just didn't work out. I was bad at the beginning. And so it it, uh, I recorded it and I think I just threw it away because it was like, this is not coherent enough right. to really like enjoy watching. But that was my goal was like, it'd be really fun to see how these things are built that you're using. You know, like it's really cool to think about like, how do you go build indie hackers and like, what approaches do you use and how do you implement these certain features? And that is the sort of stuff that you don't find in tutorials generally. Like that's one of those unique things that you can plug in. It's like, I'll show you behind the scenes yeah. how things work. And you don't find much of that. So I like deliberately going that direction. I like that idea of uh, here's how Andy Hackers was built. Here's how your other favorite website was built. It's, it's going back to that idea of, okay, you're trying to create stuff. You want people to pay attention. You need to like make it unique. One of the easiest ways to make it unique is to combine things. And so if you're going to do programming tutorials, maybe combine those with like popular websites that people want to know how to build. Uh, I know mm -hmm. at uh, MakerPad, Ben Tossel does this really well in the no-code space. And he won't just be like, oh, here's how you can like build a 
profile page of that code. He'll say, like, here's how you build Airbnb, something very specific that mm-hmm. people are interested in. And it's like very vivid and people are like, oh, I want to build Airbnb. And I think his tutorials just do really well because he's combining like both something that you know about and like this technology you want to learn. Yeah, and it's not trivial. It's not like just the profile page. It's right. like, no, you have to think about the entire workflow, people right. searching and checkout and all those things. And that is a a thing where like, oh, wow, I can't just read a one-page blog post that teaches me that entire thing. That is many, many steps and lots of decisions that you need to make. And you're probably not trying to build a Airbnb competitor, but you're trying to build this for a different market. And that is perfect because then you can go grab that and say, cool, let's try and apply this right. to some other market. Exactly. That I think is really good inspiration for people. And yeah, I enjoy those. That's an- another interesting thing about like the weekly screencasts don't have to be as advanced or as thorough. I can cover like a specific feature of Airbnb and I don't have to spend say three months figuring all that out and turning it into a course. It's a lot smaller investment, which I kind of like about the screencast, but I've also gone and done some courses and there's an interesting balance there where it's like some of these things are three months of hard work and a launch and you make a bunch of money and then you got to maintain it a little bit, but you're basically done. And then the screencasts are like, okay, every single week I got to sit down one day and record the video for next week. And it's a bit more of a treadmill, but it also has a much steadier revenue compared to a course launch. And for me, that was like more important because I was originally like, how do I replace my salary? And I wanted steady. I didn't want to make 40K in one month and then nothing for the rest of the year or something. Yeah, That was too risky for me personally. Yeah, it's kind of a, a preference where I also don't like the idea of, of working super hard on something, kind of keeping it hidden, and then having this one pivotal moment, this huge all or nothing <laughs> launch yep. where it has to work. And you're just sweating bullets the whole time, wondering what's going to go well. And whenever I see people doing things this way, I'm just like, like I will literally never do anything that way. I've never done anything <laughs> with indie hackers that way, besides maybe the first launch. And it took three weeks to get the product ready before the first launch. So it wasn't like, you know, all my eggs in one basket here. It was super simple. But everything yeah. I've ever done after that, like the forum, I just sort of like, it was a gradual kind of like, hey, this is here, but I'm not going to launch it. The product directory, uh, even the podcast, just kind of like, I'm going to put it out quietly and then keep working on it and iterating on it. And then what you can do is you can launch things later. So the Indie Hackers Forum existed for like a year and a half before I put it on Product Hunt. And by the time I put it on Product Hunt, it was already really big. I had iterated all the kinks out. And like I felt confident about the launch. And even if the launch was a dud, I knew the forum was doing really well regardless. Yeah, that is what I just did for a course that I actually haven't like officially launched it yet either. I had a sort of fake launch originally, maybe a month and a half, maybe two months ago. And it was basically, it's now an early access. And if you want to review the course, you still pay for the course. But if you want to review it and give me feedback, and I will go and take your feedback and improve the course and then answer questions that you have in the course. It was a way for me to get students more involved who were really excited about it. And I could do that. And then when it's pretty polished and reviewed and everything by actual people, then I can do an official launch later on. And that was kind of nice and actually just charging for the pre-release version of it. Yep. To some people, they were like, why is this not free? And I was like, well, it's not free because I'm actually going to be doing extra work for you personally while it's in this you know, beta period. And I think I saw that with, um, with Adam Lavin's tweet somewhere that he mentioned, you know, there's actually a good argument to me to be made that a pre-release version of Tailwind UI or something might cost more than the actual final version because it's not as polished and he's going to have to do more work to help you right. specifically. You know, And I yeah. thought that was kind of interesting. It's counterintuitive. People would think, no, I'm not going to pay more for this early crappy version. <laughs> but like, they are getting something in return, which is like getting a first look. Yeah. They're getting in the, in the line well before anyone else. And some personal you know, connection with the creator because they're actually getting involved and you know, once you have, with however many sales they've made on Tailwind UI, they can't go personally talk to every person, you know, at this point. But when it's in early access and they have a significantly smaller group, you're going to have much more 
access to shape the direction of it or whatever. And, and that can be really valuable for some people. So that is absolutely worth paying for in the early days, but not for everybody. So in the process of running Go Rails, uh, you sort of discovered that there's more ideas here than, than just screencast. You've talked about uh, putting out courses. You've talked about putting out templates. You've talked about uh, the fact that you've built this kind of SaaS application to help people like deploy their Rails apps, but we haven't really gone into detail in any of those. Which of those do you think is the biggest business opportunity for you? Probably Hatchbox, which is the deployment tool. That one, in a sense, it's kind of competing with a Heroku or you know, AWS in a way, you know, competing with like a Beanstalk or something, but not uh, servers itself. I mean, we just launched that in like January of 2017, somewhere around there as a like, meh, this would be nice if we have something to save me time. Like, we'll just automate this script. And that's been one of those ones where people have been continually asking me to add features and like do all kinds of things. And I've been like, extremely surprised because you know i was worried about it's a complicated product like super complicated and i was worried about i'm going to build it and i don't know if i'm going to build it right and i don't want to break stuff so i don't want to market it at all until i'm pretty confident and i still feel that way but there are people just continuing to sign up even though i'm kind of in a way (laughs) like trying to discourage them because i give you like a five-day free trial but you have to put your card in from the beginning. You know, things I wouldn't normally do. But like, even though I'm discouraging people from signing up a bit, they're still doing it. And so I'm like quite amazed with that. Yeah. But the trouble has been, you know, now I'm responsible for helping people fix their code that's broken to deploy mm-hmm. it. And so now I have to go learn pretty quickly how someone else's app works, which is in general, Rails is kind of standardized, but people customize you know, all kinds of things. And so it's really forced me into doing a lot of support, but it also has the most potential. And it's also the lowest amount of churn as well. So if I deploy your app, chances are you're going to continue paying as long as you want that app running. So that's a good, you know, comparison to the, or a compliment to the screencast business, which has high churn and sometimes struggles growing because churn is as high as growth is in screencast sometimes and that's just how that is yeah so it's been really interesting to see that and have those together and you know both of those are subscriptions and i was at some point i was like just kind of curious about like how is selling us a one-off purchase you know and everything i was doing was was not that so I, i eventually stumbled into like i'm building all these apps go rails needs payments and Teams and all these features and so does Hatchbox and other like every other project that I've done for consulting kind of needs the same things. Why don't I just go write a Rails app that has all these features and ready to go from the very beginning and you can configure it and turn certain things on and off and whatever, but I'll sell it for a one-time purchase. And uh, boy, that blew up too. And I was like amazed with that. And What's interesting about that one is it's partially the most fun to build, but also it is like the easiest out of all of them because it's like I can dive in, you know, once every quarter and fix a bunch of things and kind of batch my work on it, but it just keeps selling and I don't have to do a whole lot to it. And it's blowing, like both of those products have kind of blown my mind because I've realized they work now because people know me from the screencasts. Right. And maybe eventually the idea would be to give all the screencasts away for free because the people probably who can't afford them could use them the most would make the biggest difference in their lives. So eventually if I can get the other products to a point where they can replace that revenue, then I would love to make GoRails free. And that would be especially unique because no one really talks about those right, intermediate right. and advanced things. And right now, they're behind a paywall. But if you made those free, that's going to be really unique to find for free. So long term, that would be pretty cool to do. But it has been interesting to now have a business that's a subscription with high churn and then one with low churn, but a lot of support. And then a one-off sale that... Uh, 
I can kind of like work when I want to on it, but it just keeps selling. And the only downside with that one is that there's no recurring payments from people. Right. So maybe I saturate the market at some point, but I don't know, maybe not. <laughs> so I, it's just been fun to have all that combination and see how they all work differently. I mean, you're really experimenting with the trade-offs of the different business models that you've picked. And what's cool about this, I wish people, people would think about this in advance, is a lot of this is kind of predictable. right? You can go on any mm-hmm. hackers and listen to someone talk about their business and you can see, for example, I interviewed the, the guys behind Honey Badger and they also have a SaaS application that's kind of like this utility that runs in the background. Like You install it, you kind of set it and forget it. And it's very mission critical. It's very important. Like If Honey Badger goes down, like <laughs> it's pretty stressful. But like the upside is because it's a utility, it's super low churn. So when they add customers, they typically keep those customers for life, which is a really great way to start growing your revenue to something substantial. You can kind of just look at that and say, okay, these are the trade-offs. You know, do I want to have a mission-critical business where like I have to do a lot of customer support, but my revenue can grow almost indefinitely because I have low churn? No, do I want to deal with the sort of weekly cadence of having to release a new screencast or a new podcast episode or a new newsletter uh, like a lot of these businesses? But it, no, it's not mission-critical. And if I miss, you know, nobody dies. There's no customer support. There's all these trade-offs. And I think the other thing about it is uh, you're kind of illustrating what I think is one of the most important tools in any indie hacker's playbook, which is the ability to sort of pawn jump, to take your successes in one area and parlay that into like kind of the next thing. Because like you didn't raise any money. You bootstrapped all of this from your own savings, from your own time. And that means that you probably can't start big. Like you couldn't have just started with Hatchbox from day one and just acquired a bunch of customers through like advertising. You had to Definitely. start with something really small. You know, you had to start with like a blog. But you didn't stop there. You understood how to take your blog and parlay like that traffic into getting subscription revenue, and you like, took the trust that you got from you know your, your screencast and parlay that into building the SaaS application. And now, like you're looking forward to the future, and maybe that means that your screencasts are just 100 percent free, and you're making a lot of money from you know Hatchbox. And somebody who comes along and they're like, "Oh, I want to do what Chris does." You know, he's got this really cool SaaS app, Hatchbox. Maybe like you know five, ten years from now, they won't know that you started off so small. But that's really the kind of crucial skill. How do you take something small and successively get something bigger and bigger and bigger? Yeah, I think I this probably resonates with a lot of people who are indie hackers. But like, you know, at the beginning, you're like just struggling to find anything that works that you can actually make money with. And you're not really choosing what kind of business you are building. You're just trying to find something, period. Yeah. And so for me, it was like, yeah, I'm going to get on the content And actually, this is something I thought about when I started, which is why I did courses originally. I didn't want to get on the hamster wheel because I didn't know if I was going to stick around and continue doing it. And so I did the course, which was a low, low effort kind of gamble, low risk. I'll put out the course. If it works, it does. If it doesn't, whatever. But because I hadn't like committed to anything, like it didn't work out. So by pivoting to like, I'm committing to doing Right. video every week publicly. Now people are like, okay, this guy committed to that. Like, I'm happy to throw a few bucks his way. And that ended up being a hamster wheel that really, really burned me out for a long time. And I didn't really choose it because I was just happy to have something that made money. And now I have more choice. And I've also looked at that business and tried to figure out how do I optimize it from you know, what it is to something that is sustainable for me. Because that was one of the things I remember hearing about Ryan Bates from Railscast. He had mentioned somewhere that it takes him like 40 hours per screencast to make, which is a full-time job to make one video a week. And I didn't want to do that because I want to be building other things. And I realized that if I am building other things, that means as long as it's fresh on my mind, I can record a video on a topic in four hours and edit it and publish it and stuff and really compress that work down from a week. I can compress it down to a single day. Then I have four days a week that I can do whatever I want. And there was a time where it was pretty burnt out, but I had optimized it down and I realized I was actually doing the four-hour work week, but literally the (laughs) four-hour work week where I, I made a full salary working about four hours a week where I'd record a video for a couple of hours, crazy, edit, publish it, and email everyone. And that was it. And I was like, this is amazing. But then I started getting antsy after a while where I, I had relaxed and recouped and you know got out of burnout. And then I was itching to work on something else. 
And you just have to like, once you get something working, figure out, is this sustainable? And if it's not, how do I make it sustainable? And I didn't have to hire an editor or anything. I was able to do it myself, which kept it more profitable, which is good, especially in the early days. And that I think is really important. Like you get something working, but you got to figure out how to make it sustainable. Otherwise, it's just not going to work out for you long term. You're going to burn out and that's not good. Well, I think your story is pretty inspirational because you've been a team of one. You've been incredibly productive. And somehow, despite being a team of one, you were able to work this uh, the storied four-hour work week. Uh, people listening in probably are very inspired by what you've been able to do. What would be your sort of number one tip, takeaway from your sort of story that you think people should walk away with? Oh, boy. I really think like you got to throw quite a bit of ideas at the wall at the beginning, but you got to be public about it. Like, Go build your audience and talk about what you're building. There's a lot of people who are on Twitter documenting their like, here's my business and now we're making $5 a month and now we're at 500 and whatever. And those kind of things, sharing those metrics that like no one else is talking about is that novelty that helps build your audience. And once you have the audience, like it's a lot easier to sell stuff to people and, you know, make a living. So to me, that was like really valuable to go build the audience. Daniel Vasallo on Twitter is one of the, the best at doing that. His, his Twitter course was like pretty obvious when you look at how he tweets, but he's just sharing his progress all the time and people love that. I wish I had done more of that at the beginning. I think that would have accelerated things significantly. you know. And it doesn't matter what you're building. You don't have to sell content or you know, screencasts or courses or anything. If you're talking about building your your SaaS product that could be for, you know, nurses or whatever, it's going to be interesting to nurses and they're going to find you because if you're not talking about it, you're going to have a, a pretty painful like launch in the beginning. Yeah. So that was the thing that I really undervalued. Collect your email list, talk to these people as much as you can just like learn about who they are and what they're doing. Like you don't need to ask them about will they buy your product? How much would they pay for it? Like get to know these people because like you want to understand all those nuances in their life and you might discover like, wow, we should just pivot to doing this thing because I didn't, right. no one could have told me that that was a problem, but I've seen it 35 times talking to these different people. And, you know, I think that's where a lot of these unique things come from because Jumpstart and Hatchbox and all these other products just came from, you know, talking to thousands of Rails developers over the years. And now it's very easy for me to see new ideas all the time because I'm like, well, I've talked to several thousand people and I know them pretty well these days and I know what they struggle with. Right. And it's more obvious to me now to see what I struggle with. And especially if I struggle with something, I know I can make that into a product or whatever. So, yeah, I think just become friends with these people. You don't have to like interview them or do anything fancy. You just want to get to know them. Yeah, I love it. The Chris Oliver playbook, throw spaghetti at the wall, build in public. Don't be afraid to show off what you're doing even if it's not going well. Get these people onto a mailing list and then talk to them in a casual way and you'll get all sorts of ideas. Yeah, I think it's just, uh, it seems a little obvious. Like there's no strategic framework to it or whatever, but I think it just works. You get to know people. And at the end of the day, like that's what people want to buy from. They want to buy from companies that are just humans behind it. I think that was one of the things that I loved the most about GitHub in the early days. It was like I knew every single employee of GitHub by name just because like they're public. And I, I didn't know them. I've never met them, but I knew exactly who they were and they right. were just talking about what they were doing. And I was like so inspired by that. Yeah watching them build it. And I was like, yeah, I think the human connection gets lost so much in building businesses. And I guess I get that for free, you know, doing screencasts. Everybody sees my face in the videos and hears my voice. And actually going to the Ruby on Rails conference, for the first time I went a couple of years ago, and every time I sat down at a lunch table with strangers, they were like, I heard your voice in the office last <laughs> week. And I'm like, this is the weirdest thing. That's so cool. So yeah, it was pretty fun. But it really like pointed out to me and emphasized that like human portion of this makes such a big difference. 
So yeah, I would just say that is really undervalued and it seems too simple to work, but it does. Yeah. I talked to a lot of developers who listen to the podcast and they're like, you know, Cortland, talk more about SaaS apps. I just want to write some code and put it out there. I don't want to hear about people building audiences or writing mailing lists or, or doing the grind. And it's like, you know, it's just really hard to have one of these faceless, nameless, and human businesses that work. It's really, really hard to do that. Like you said, people want to buy from people. People want to know a story. And I think if your dream really is to build one of these SaaS applications, like you still have to do that storytelling. You still have to be an actual face and a personality if you want to get there in any reasonable time frame. Yep. Anyway, Chris, thanks a ton for your insights and sharing your story. Can you let listeners know where they can go to find you online? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter um, at EXCID3. Exit3 is my username basically everywhere. So you can find me there or just go to GoRails.com. That's where pretty much everything centers around for me. So yeah, thanks for having me on. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and you want an easy way to support the podcast, you should leave a review for us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Probably the fastest way to get there if you're on a Mac is to visit IndieHackers.com slash reviews. I really appreciate your support and I read pretty much all the reviews you leave over there. Thank you so much for listening and as always, I will see you next time.